how do faith and literature come together in our lives to inspire us and to teach us more about being human beings? Greg Garrett teaches English literature at Baylor University, and we'll be exploring that with him, an author and teacher and a Christian. Stay tuned for Good God. Welcome to Good God, conversations that matter about faith and public life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm pleased to welcome back to the program, Greg Garrett, the professor of English at Baylor University in Waco, and for the last 30 years teaching there and uh, writing books and uh, preaching on the side as a lay Episcopal preacher and all of that. My goodness, what a life, Greg. Uh, it is, it's a much better life than I expected it to be, Well, as we will discover when we talk. Yes. So we're gonna talk a little bit in this episode about your writing, about literature and, and uh, the intersection of faith and literature and all of that. But let's, uh, let's start with the faith part of it. You teach at Baylor University, which is a Baptist institution, mm -hmm. and you actually did grow up Baptist. I did indeed. So <clears throat> what are those things that formed you as a Baptist that you both um, kept and let go of that led you eventually uh, to the Episcopal Church? Tell us about that story. Well, that's, I mean, it has been an interesting journey. Um, my family became Southern Baptist because my dad's family was Pentecostal, okay. Assembly of God, and my mother's family were Methodists. Uh -huh. And I think that they thought that Southern Baptists were a compromise okay. between them. And it, it is strange how the uh, decisions that shape your lives, your life gets, gets made. Um, some, some of us would say the Southern Baptists have been compromising for a long time, <laughs> as a matter of fact, and still. But we all do, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I, I was raised uh, in a very faithful household. Um, we were in church every time the doors were open. Okay. Uh, my dad, for some time, was the music director of our church after we moved back uh, to Oklahoma from the Deep South. And uh, so there was this very strong sense that um, who we were as Southern Baptists was a very big part of our identity. Right. And there were many things in that tradition that I resonated with powerfully. Uh, I loved and still love the music. Yes. Uh, in fact, in my sermon uh, tomorrow, I'm going to reference uh, one of the invitation hymns uh -huh. that I grew up hearing. And um, there, were, um, there was a, a powerful uh, importance placed on the Word. Yes. And I learned uh, my Bible frontwards and backwards, yes. and uh, it shaped me at that time and continues to shape me now. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. there's, there's not going to be a biblical reference that, that gets past me. Right. Um, and, and I was also really drawn to the idea of preaching as a powerful sacramental moment. Mm -hmm. Although most of the sermons that I heard growing up made me feel bad mm. about myself. Yeah. And uh, so we, we did grow up in a, a sort of traditional fire and brimstone. Shame-based, yeah, guilt-oriented shame yep. mm -hmm. preaching environment. And, and that was the part of Southern Baptist life that was not good for me. Yes. Uh, as an artist and a thinker, um, I was an very sensitive soul right. in a place where I could be easily damaged. Yes. And um, I still struggle, even to this day in my 50s, to uh, mm. get over some of that sense of shame that was um, reinforced yes. in me yes. uh, by my faith at that time. When I left uh, the house, I went to college. Like many people, I left faith for a long time. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, 
because I had felt that that was an unhealthy expression of faith for me. Mm -hmm. And since it was the only expression of faith I knew, mm -hmm. I thought that was sort of, that's how God's people are. Mm -hmm. You know, you right. can walk into a Baptist church and that's how you're going to feel. Right. And now, of course, I know that that is absolutely untrue. Right. But it was the only knowledge that I had to work mm -hmm. with. And so uh, when I was hired at Baylor, I was not a church-going person. Uh, the uh, questions that they asked me were very vague. Uh, they're much more detailed now as Baylor is much more intentional about retaining yes. a Christian identity. But um, they asked me if I believed in God, which I did in some form, and if I supported the mission of the university, which I absolutely did, particularly if they hired me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would support it very, very yes. much. Yes. And um, the one thing that I will say about coming in at that time in the life of Baylor University is that although I would not have been hired now, uh -huh. even though um, it has turned out to be good for me and for the university, and I hope for right. generations of students. Baylor did become a place which, because of this Baptist influ influence on uh, exploring your spirituality mm -hmm. and finding out who you are as a Christian, I was able to find my way back to faith Good. with, good. with the sense that Baylor was not going to throw me away Nice for, for not being exactly of what they would hope from Wonderful. Uh, a, a Christian faculty member. The, the final sort of piece uh, about the relationship between my growing up and where I ended up, um, I come from a family that suffers from hereditary chronic depression. Uh -huh. And uh, so I had uh, some great uncles who uh, drank themselves to death. I'm fairly confident that my grandfather, who was one of the great heroes of my life, suffered from depression at a time when it was unspeakable. There was nothing yes. Yes. that he could say about it or that anyone could say to him. Uh, my mother has suffered from it. My children, mm -hmm. my boys have suffered from it. And for a stretch of years, uh, right around the turn of the last millennium, I was almost killed by it. Wow. And um, so I had one of those... Um, those sorts of moments one morning where it, it's like that scene in the movies where somebody falls in the forest and he says, you all go on without me, I'm done for. Yes. That, that actually, I didn't say that out loud, but that was the sense I was like, this is uh -huh. as far as I can go. I can't, I, I can't take another step. And I had this very strange experience shortly after that feeling like I'm, I'm done for, I can't, I can't go on. Where I was reading Texas Monthly and I, I read about an African-American Episcopal church on the east side of Austin. Uh -huh. And for some reason I made note of the name of the church. And then I looked it up in the phone book. We used to have yes, phone, books. phone books. And then I drove by it one day to find out where it was. And then one Sunday I walked in the back door of that church and I was scared to death. Uh -huh. um, because I was as sick as I has, have, have ever been. Uh -huh. And as I said, I didn't have great memories of, of walking into church. And so I was just shivering. And the thing that I discovered about St. James was that it was the historically African-American Episcopal Church, mm -hmm. that it had been formed by people who had been rejected by white Episcopalians. Wow. And the particular charism, spiritual gift, mm -hmm. of St. James was radical hospitality. Wow. And if I had walked into other churches in Austin on that morning, I would not be here today. Wow. But I was welcomed, I was loved, I was greeted. Uh, when they passed the peace, every member of that church passed me the peace. Wow. And so at a time when I didn't even really know what that meant. Of course. There was this powerful sacramental manifestation of it. 
And then the last thing, and I still remember because I tell this story to this day, um, my priest, Greg Rickle, who is now the Episcopal Bishop of Olympia in Washington mm -hmm. State, stood up behind the altar and it felt like he was looking directly at me as pastors have that gift, as you know. And he said, wherever you are in your walk of faith, you are welcome at this table. Nice. And that, that welcome, that invitation changed my life. And there were things about the Episcopal Church that I learned about the Episcopal Church that were well suited to me. Mm -hmm. um, like the people at Wilshire Baptist Episcopalians read. Yes. <laughs> so right. that, that's a fairly good thing for a writer. Right. Um, they, they pay attention to beauty um, mm -hmm. and the idea that art and culture can be a, a mm -hmm. secondary sacrament yes. that God can be speaking in those ways, which was not mm -hmm. something that, that happened mm -hmm. in my youth. Right. Um, but that had often been a part of my journey between those years, mm -hmm. uh, between formal church and formal church, where something in the culture spoke to me and gave me the strength to go on for right. another day or another right. month. Um, and, and then the other thing is that I just felt this very strong attachment, particularly to this church, but it's part of the Episcopal Church's history as well, to uh, issues of peace and justice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so to have been at sort of ground zero for that in an African-American Episcopal Church, uh, where we had an icon of Martin Luther King on the wall. Wow. Um, it was, yeah. well, it was miraculous. So I, I want to pick up on a few things you said that just fascinate me. But, you know, one of them is uh, that the, <clears throat> what, I understand a little more, I think, perhaps now about your passion for racial justice in that uh, you were maybe saved by Jesus, but you were saved through African-American uh, Christians. I, I was saved by lovely women in beautiful church hats. Okay, there you go, <laughs> yes. And so um, th there's, there's a beautiful sense there, I think, about how uh, your sense of brokenness and neediness, uh, you, you, you f found a community that lived that every day, but yeah. had found the strength of salvation in Christ in this beautiful Episcopal setting, yeah. uh, which is, tends to be in worldwide dominated more by white uh, experience by, uh, yeah. from the Anglican world. And so uh, you, you really have put yourself in a fascinating setting now. Uh, so, so there's some of that. The other piece of it I find interesting is the Episcopal Church has tended to do its theology from the incarnation mm -hmm. as the central aspect of its theological orientation. Right. That is, God came to be among us in Christ, mm -hmm. in the flesh, thereby uh, sanctifying all of creation as a vehicle of grace. Right. Uh, the, the Baptist Church tends to start with the brokenness of sin and the need of the cross to correct right, it, right. but has a very weak doctrine of creation, mm -hmm. which for an artist is not good, but also for a human being to forget that you were created in the image and likeness of God and God yeah. set over you very good. Yeah. You know? uh, and, and so uh, I, I think today what we're learning from each other's experience is where we have been weak and can be strengthened by these relationships. Mm -hmm. Baptists can learn from Episcopalians, Episcopalians can learn from Baptists, white uh, 
Americans can learn from black Americans, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I will tell you, just in a very practical sense, this will not surprise you, but um, my homiletics professor in seminary was Roger Painter, <laughs> um, a, a great a Baptist, Baptist preacher. Yes. And um, although there are great Episcopal preachers, yes. it is not at the center of our worship. Right. You know, right. the, the uh, communion is at the center of our worship, and we, we decentered the pulpit right. uh, to put it in the middle Yes. of the service. Mm -hmm. and, and proclamation still matters. Right. But um, I had that model, my remembrance of effective mm -hmm. preaching from my youth, yes. and then this, this great uh, teacher who believed fervently that the, the preaching moment is a sacrament every bit as powerful and important as what uh, happens absolutely. at the end. And as a writer, uh, in the beginning was the word. Yeah. So there is both the, the proclamation of the word uh, but there's also the word as story. Mm. And here is your uh, gift being played out as well as a writer, a teacher. Uh, but the, 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 the word comes to us not as an abstract proposition mm -hmm. uh, or a, a whisper from the heavens somewhere, but it, it comes in a life. The right? story of a human life, yes. exactly. So, yeah. So this ties together a lot of your religious experience as well as your professional experience, and I'd like to pursue that uh, a little more after the break, um, but uh, I, I think the fact that you continue to be uh, welcome in Baptist settings, in African-American settings, in Episcopal church settings, and you are a uh, a, a theologian in residence at the American Cathedral, which is an Episcopal uh, or Anglican church mm -hmm. in Paris. In Paris, uh, yeah. most every uh, every summer. This is uh, this is Greg Garrett writ large. I mean, all over the place. Well, it's it's a stunning it's a stunning life. Yeah. And 20 years ago, I did not expect to be here. And I think one of the most amazing things is that every moment since then has been a gift. Yes. But because I learned early on to recognize it as a gift, yeah. I also learned how much of it um, I needed to give back. Mm -hmm. um, so there is this incredible gratitude that I have uh, to God, to the church, mm -hmm. um, for giving me this life where mm -hmm. I have purpose. And um, after years of unhappiness, uh, I remarried, I have a family. Um, I put girls to bed, I read them bedtime stories. It's, it is all almost unbelievable to me, mm -hmm. and yet I recognize it as this miraculous blessing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is, I mean, that is the amazing thing, is to say, you know, I, I was so close to not being here at all. Yes, yes. And by the grace of God. Lovely. Lovely. Here I am. When we come back from the break, then I want to talk more about word and story and writing and, and literature, so uh, how all of that integrates together. So uh, we'll be right back. Thank you for continuing to tune in to Good God. This program is available, as many of you already know, in various formats. You can take it as a podcast that uh, is delivered to all the places you would go, whether Apple Podcasts or uh, Google Play, uh, and, and you can hear it weekly and you can subscribe to it. A new episode drops every Thursday morning, and so we invite you to do that and subscribe. Uh, you can also find the video format in various places on the Facebook page where we invite you to like Good God. 
you can also find it on YouTube and on VocalNow, V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W.com, VocalNow. Uh, so these are various places you can go. I'd also want to tell you that you can go to the website. That's, that's www.goodgodproject.com goodgodproject.com, and there you can find an archive of all of our previous episodes. If you like what you hear on any given week, you might actually uh, like to have a transcript of the conversation, and if you go to the website, goodgodproject.com, you can find a transcript there also, uh, where you can cut and paste and uh, use uh, what's been said in that conversation. Uh, so we'd invite you to find various ways to continue to tune in and to enjoy these conversations. One special thing I want to say is thank you to the friends of this program who have contributed financially to make it possible for us to do this without inviting you to have to give. Uh, we're grateful for the support of friends of this program, and I hope that you will be too. Please tell your friends about Good God and continue to tune in. Thanks for being part of it. We're back with Greg Garrett, and Greg, we were talking before the break about uh, the word and story. Mm -hmm. You were talking about growing up knowing the Bible in the Baptist church and how important that is because there's references everywhere in literature, especially right. in American literature, right? Uh, Western literature generally, I guess you would say. Right. But you, I mean, you can't read Faulkner, you can't read uh, Flannery O'Connor, you can't read the, the great uh, American uh, novelists, certainly Southern writers, right. without hearing echoes of or understanding them without knowing that there's a story behind the story always with them, right? Right. So, so literacy, biblical literacy has been really important in understanding whether it's Shakespeare or whether it's just you know any of these stories, uh, and yet we find ourselves in a time of of declining biblical literacy. What is right. the uh, what's lost in that 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 you had the privilege of having and gaining and and using, but where, where are we now uh, with, with that lack of biblical literacy? Well, I think the big thing that gets lost is an immediate sort of recognition yes. of what a story is or where it can take us. Right. And so in a, in a good sermon, like I'm preaching tomorrow, I'm gonna tell some stories, we've mm -hmm. got a gospel story. Mm -hmm. You know, part of the, the job of the preacher is to help people to connect with that story. Yes. But when you walk in knowing something about the story or knowing the entire story, right. you have this level of connection already built in. Uh -huh. um, so I'm going to tell a story tomorrow about something that happened in the, the throes of my depression where I, I heard a voice that told me I was supposed to go to Nineveh. Uh -huh. And for, it feels like 80% of the American public now, that would be just mm. lost. It would be, Isn't that what? something? Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, I knew exactly what that voice was saying. Mm -hmm. um, my response to it can wait till the sermon, but yes. um, I knew the context, I knew the actors, I knew the themes of right. that story. Right. And so often when I'm teaching a literature or a film class now at Baylor, even though we are you know, a determinedly Christian university, a lot of our students are not Christian. Right. Um, some of them are from other faith traditions, some of them are from no faith tradition. Right. 
And uh, so I, I, in some ways I miss the early days when I could have the sense that a bunch of my students had been to Sunday school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so there, there is a lot more teaching that has to go into it. Uh, but a second thing is I do recognize that our culture is often telling our stories mm. for us. And it's just our job to remind people that this is where that came from. Yes. Um, so there, there are often times where we'll be exposed to a, a, a Christ figure or a Moses figure or a, 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 a Virgin Mary who has this ridiculous request made upon her and faithfully says, I will do it. Yes. Um, and then it just sort of becomes the job, as I've said over the years, to, to lay breadcrumbs. Yes, yes. Back to the tradition. So is there one story really, uh, or I mean, we live in a postmodern world that says there's no such thing as a meta-narrative, but there is a gospel story that we claim mm-hmm. is, is really a true rendering of the world, and it does seem to have a consistent move that we find in all great stories, don't we? And that yeah. is to say, there's a, a sort of an idyllic period that conflict comes into it, and mm-hmm. then different ways we can't resolve it, and then finally a resolution, and this is the gospel story, isn't it? Yeah. There, there, I respectfully disagree with the postmodernists, uh-huh. and as a storyteller and an, an, an analyst of uh-huh. stories, a preacher of stories, um, that's exactly the reaction I ought to have. Right. If we don't have core narratives in common, then we've lost everything. Right. Because narrative is the way we make sense of our experience. Right. Um, if I'm going to tell you what happened to me today, I'm going to tell it in the form of a story. First this, then this, then this. Right. And so I do believe that there are master narratives that are at the heart of our experience as human beings. Mm-hmm. And one of them is represented by our experience of God and human brokenness. Mm-hmm. God's continuous reaching out to us in our human brokenness. Yes. And the idea that the end of our journey is to find home uh-huh. in God and with a community of uh, people who understand us and know us and love us. Yes. So this, this movement from brokenness to wholeness is psychologically true, but I also believe it's cosmically true. Yes. Because it, it's at the heart of our faith. And even before the Christian story, uh, this story seems to be embedded in the longings of humanity. Right. The, you know, Homer's um, uh, Odyssey, uh, there is this longing for home. Yeah. Uh, the, the Odyssey, the Iliad, the, you know, all of these uh, Greek uh, sagas that have yeah. this similar sense of, of life is a journey, it's a, it's a journey for home, we've been yeah. estranged in some way, it's a struggle to get back, we have to fight temptation to give up and to, you know, all of these sorts of things. It, it, it's, it's very, it, 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 in other words, it's, it's not that the Christian story is the only story, but it, right. is, uh, it is a story that helps us understand all of our stories, isn't it? Well, you know, that's the great conversation, the ongoing conversation between C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Right, right. And, you know, the, the sort of conversion story um, where, you know, Lewis begins to believe that these stories are all part of a, a larger story mm-hmm. and they are all gathered together mm-hmm. in this one sacred yes. story. Mm-hmm. And I, I do firmly believe that and I, I believe that that's one of the great gifts that we have as a faithful people is that we can tell these stories in ways that are going to be powerful um, and, and in some way healing yes. to people to say there is more than this brokenness that you feel. There is more than this loneliness. Yes. You can be known and loved. You are known. Yes. And loved. Right. 
I mean, one of the things I admire, though, about the postmodern uh, understanding is they recognize or they point, they give attention to the fact that there have been characters who have been left out of the story. Right. That whose voice needs to be heard. Uh, a recognition that sometimes those other characters have not been fully realized human beings. Yeah. And so they want those stories to be told not simply as a scapegoat person to advance the story of the main character, mm -hmm. but uh, something more than that. And that, I think, too, is helpful uh, to us in our gospel work, isn't it? No, it's a very powerful thing. Um, and we have a long tradition of that. I mean, we can go back to Jewish Midrash, yes. which tries to rescue the Good. forgotten people in the story. Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is uh, Hagar, mm -hmm. Ishmael, and, and there's a sense in which, uh, you know, maybe Islam is a, a, a midrash on, <laughs> yeah. you know, on that story as a whole religion and, 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 and culture. It's, it's a remarkable uh, idea of, of that kind of redemption. Mm -hmm. yeah. My friend, the poet Scott Cairns, uh, oh, has done Scott. a, a yeah, series of, of midrashes. And yeah. my favorite, you may, you may know, is uh, the poem about Lot's wife. Yeah. And the beginning of that poem says, first she had a name. Ah, nice. And yes. it, that just that idea of reclaiming the humanity right. of all of these forgotten or, or pushed aside characters from the biblical story. Um, there, is, there is that very powerful sense in postmodern life that yes, there are a bunch of stories that haven't been told right. and they need to be told. And that absolutely is something I can affirm. So what animates you as a writer? When you try to uh, talk about your vocation to people, say, why did you become a writer? Uh, what, what is it that makes you more alive when you write? Well, I write two kinds of things. Okay. So I write fiction, uh, I write novels, mm -hmm. and I write nonfiction, which is mostly about the intersection of a bunch of disciplines. Okay. Um, I'm very interested in, in the ways we understand ourselves in the world, mm -hmm. and how does religion help us do that? How does literature, mm -hmm. uh, how do movies and other kinds of culture, um, how do we understand ourselves in groups or in, in society? Um, so when I'm writing fiction, and actually, I think the animating thing around all of this is I want to know more. Ah, good. The yeah. reason that I write is I want to know more. Okay. And with a particular character, it's because I want to understand my life more fully through his life, mm -hmm. which is what we do in literature. Yes. Um, C.S. Lewis said, we read to know that we're not alone. That's good. And uh, so part of what's happening is, as a writer, I am wrestling with life as this character experiences it. And it's not exactly my life, although there are often gonna be elements of my life in it. Uh -huh. There will be you know, an autobiographical thing here, here, and here. Mm. But in great art, we learn something about ourselves. You know, I learned something about myself just watching Black Klansman again for the umpteenth time uh -huh. today. Yes. Um, and weeping, as a matter of fact, you said, yeah. yes. And so, uh, fiction comes out of that great desire to understand myself and where I fit. And nonfiction has a very similar kind of drive, but often it is a little more focused because I will ask myself, what does exploring this topic for the next three years teach me okay. about the human endeavor, who we are, who we're called to be? Right. And sometimes it's a very particular kind of question. Uh, the last time I was here, I had just finished, um, and my book that was out was a book for Oxford University Press about the zombie apocalypse, uh -huh. which is a very particular <laughs> kind of narrative, very popular. Right. But one of the things that I really wanted to understand was why is this story everywhere? Yes. And why does it seem to be so much more prevalent after 9-11? What, mm. what mm. kind of human needs does this story serve for people? Right. 
And uh, so sometimes it's, it's a very particular focus thing and I learn about it and I don't have to go back to it. Yes. And sometimes it's a book like this book on race and film, which I have coming out later this year. Mm -hmm. And it is clear to me that I'm gonna be learning and talking and teaching on this topic maybe for the rest of my life. Right. Because it is so big yes. and because unlike the zombie apocalypse, it has a daily application mm -hmm. in our lives and in our culture. So you mentioned that you write both fiction and nonfiction. People probably should read both fiction and nonfiction to be well-balanced human beings. Now, Marilyn Robinson, who does so also, says that she, yes. she writes all of her nonfiction on a computer. Mm. She writes all of her fiction longhand because she somehow thinks that her fiction, there needs to be a kind of um, wondering her way along mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that, that it's not as it's not as certain I guess maybe it's coming from a different part of the brain or something like that do you have an experience of two different sort of ways of approaching that in in terms of how you write and what mm -hmm. it means to you in one sense everything I write I, ha I have a similar routine okay so just at, at a basic sort of ground level I have written fiction and nonfiction in the same places. I've written them in Paris. I've written them in, okay. in New Mexico at uh -huh. Ghost Ranch. Um, but there is, I think, a different kind of thing that happens. Um, and just hearing her method, I actually do something very, very similar. Uh -huh. uh, I do a lot of my drafting nonfiction on the computer. Uh -huh. um, almost all of what I write for the novels is longhand in my journals. Fascinating. And, and I do believe, and I think actually uh, people who have studied our cognitive processes say that something different happens when you write something than when you type. Interesting. Uh, I often tell my students that you will retain better if you write something longhand than okay. if you type it. Wow. Um, but I think there is also something that it is coming from a place that is maybe less analytical, which is not to say you don't do analysis and criticism as a part of your process. Right. You know, a good novel has to be shapely. Yes. You know, it has to it has to be well formed. The words have got to be the right words in the right places. Right. Um, but I think largely what I do with the nonfiction is more analytical. Mm -hmm. And while there is a creativity to it, my books tend to be long form personal essays. Yes. Uh, where I'm going to say, here's what I want to talk about. Uh -huh. Walk with me on this journey, and let's see what we learn. Right. Um, there is a lot of data mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, because they're very heavily sourced and, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know, heavily res researched. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that there is a lot more, I guess, what we would say, is that right brain? I forget, left brain, right brain. Yeah. But whichever is the more analytical right. side left brain. seems to control yeah. yes. that, that part of the process. And I think that probably the more creative. So I think it's interesting just reflecting on my own uh, mm -hmm. vocation, how some churches and some preachers are more drawn toward the Gospels, toward mm -hmm. the narratives, uh, and others uh, toward more of the, the epistolary works right. of Paul and the like, and even you can think of this uh, in the larger canon, where some are more given toward you know, the, uh, the covenantal laws mm -hmm. and uh, and interpreting them for everyday life, and others are m more oriented toward the narratives of the patriarchs and of the prophets and things of that right. nature. Right. And what does, what makes for a healthy spiritual life and congregation? It would seem to me to have enough 
uh, diversity there, enough right. uh, uh, of all of that coming together. Well, Greg, I, I think we could just do this all day long, but I thank you so much for all that you do, uh, for the writing, for the lecturing, for the being present in all of our uh, places to help challenge us and hold up mm -hmm. a, a mirror to us, to our soul. It's, uh, it's a great privilege to know you. Thank you, George. Great. Such a pleasure. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White, social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.